Welcome to Northview Community Church's podcast. Today we'll be continuing our series on the Gospel of Luke, but first we will hear an Advent message from Pastor Joshua. We want to let you know about our upcoming Christmas events. We have a comedy special called Late Night with Leland Clausen. It'll be an evening of comedy, music, special guests, and a few bloopers from the past year of Northview TV. Join us live online on Friday, December 18th at 7 p.m. Our Bible studies have grown over the past years, and we've seen lives transformed as we have studied God's Word together. Our men's and women's Bible studies are starting up again in January, and we'd love for you to join. We offer these studies on a few different days, both in Abbotsford and Mission, both online and in person when it's possible. We are all looking forward to Christmas Eve, and our team has been working hard putting together our online Christmas Eve service. It will be a time of celebration and joy, even in the midst of these circumstances. You can watch it on our website or our YouTube channel. For more info and to learn more about all of our ministries, please visit northview.org or follow us on social media. Peace is a costly thing. Uh, I remember some of the, the few fights that I would have with my brothers when I was young. Uh, they would usually end with me running into the bathroom, locking the door, waiting for about an hour or an hour and a half till my parents showed up. And then even when they did, the rest of the day or even the rest of the week would just be absolutely terrible. Until I finally worked up the courage to apologize. But the bigger the conflict, uh, the higher the price of peace. I, I mean, in, in that case, uh, I had to pay with an hour of my time and the humility to say I'm sorry. But take a conflict like World War I and the cost of peace just skyrockets. Um, in 1919, at the Treaty of Versailles, the, the terms of peace were finally signed by the victorious Allied forces and the losing nation of Germany. In the end, it cost the German nation 10% of all its territory, all of its overseas possessions, limitations on its army, its navy, its air force, and a financial debt that would amount to about $269 billion today. That's a high price to pay for peace. It took them 92 years to finally pay off that debt. When the Bible describes the relationship that, that we had with the Lord before we came to know and believe in Him, it, it actually uses the language of two opposing forces. It's a little surprising. In, in Colossians 1.21, Paul says this, once, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. In Romans 5.10, he simply says, we were God's enemies. Why would we be called His enemies? I mean, really, it, it comes down to this. If God is holy, 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 totally and absolutely pure, righteous, and good in all that he does, and he's the sovereign king of, of the universe, then when we sin, and oh, we've sinned, uh, what, what we're actually doing is committing cosmic treason. So here's my question. What, what could possibly be the cost of peace between the perfectly holy king of the universe and his sinful, rebellious creation? If it took 92 years for Germany to pay, how long might it take us? Well, for sins against an eternally holy God, I, I would say it should really take an eternity. But here's the wonderfully unexpected news. Let, let's carry on from Colossians 1.21 into verse 22. Again, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Listen, the way this should work is that the guilty party is the one that ought to pay the debt, right? Uh, but the glorious news of the gospel is that the innocent party, God himself, was the one who paid it. And, and what did he pay with? The life of his only son. So God, the offended party, sends his only son to make peace with us, the offenders. 
And how do we accept these terms of peace? Well, with faith. Romans 5.1 says this, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. This is the peace of Christmas. Not just peace between one another, not just peace among our families, but peace with God himself. A peace that we could never have paid for on our own, but, but that our loving Heavenly Father chose to pay for with the life and death of his only Son. It's certainly for a good reason that Paul calls it the gospel of peace. If you had told me when I was younger that I would one day like poetry, I would have doubted you very much. Uh, when you're a young guy, one of the worst things that you could possibly think about was sitting in a room and listening to poetry read. It just doesn't make any sense. Oftentimes the, the images are obtuse and bizarre and you just would much rather people have, say what they mean. Just say straight ahead. But as I've grown older, uh, I have grown in my, my love for poetry. And, and you know, most of the music that we listen to actually is our modern poetry. Uh, the great poets of our, our world are the ones who put, put, put it all into song. And there's something about poetry, about art and, and, and a song that is able to say something in a deeper, uh, more heartfelt way than just using, you know, plain, plain words. So, for example, um, if, if you have uh, been, you know, around a girl your whole life and, you know, she ne lived next door and, you, you know, you were looking to marry other girls all over the place and then you realize that she was the one for you, you could one day sit next to her and go, you know, I didn't notice it, but you're pretty great. Okay, that's good. Or you could use the words of Ed Sheeran. Take me into your loving arms. Kiss me under the light of a thousand stars. Place your head on my beating heart. I'm thinking out loud. Maybe we found love right where we are. See, that's better. Much better. Or if uh, you've been you've been uh, thinking about how your marriage has lasted a long time. My marriage is 27 years this year, and you realize that your wife or your husband has had to live with you for all that time, and you've, you're, not, you're not always the best person to be around. You could write them a little note and say, hey, thanks for 27 years, and it's been great. Thanks a lot for putting up with me. Or you could do what the Imagine Dragons did, and you could sing a song like this. Something about the way that you walked in my living room, casually and confident, looking at the mess I am, but still you, still you want me. Stress lines and cigarettes, politics and deficits, late builds and overages, screaming and hollering, but still you, still you want me. Oh, I always let you down. You're shattered on the ground, but still I find you there next to me. See, when I, when I sing that song to my wife, uh, she tears up. But when I say, hey, honey, you're cool, uh, she doesn't take it quite as, as deeply. We, we do this with Christmas as well, you know. Hey, Jesus was born. Isn't that great? Or you can use some of the words even from more modern Christmas songs. Uh, Chris Tomlin sings this really lovely song called He Shall Reign Forevermore. Uh, it starts, in the bleak midwinter, all creation groans. 
for a world in darkness, frozen like a stone. Light is breaking in a stable for a throne, and he shall reign forevermore, forevermore. Unto us a child is born, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign forevermore. There's something about poetry that makes you feel it more. And that's why it's existed throughout all, all our days. And that's why when we fall in love, we have to write poems to each other. And that's why when we really are touched by the world around, we want to write a song. We see the mountains, we want to write a song about it. And deepest things in our lives touch us in ways that make art the outcome. That's probably why you have a song uh, from Zechariah in the book of Luke. Uh, it's not the first song in the book of Luke. You have Mary's song just a few uh, verses earlier. She hears from the, from the angel that she's going to bear this child. Uh, she accepts that and then she sings a song reflecting on what this means, that she, a 12-year-old, 14-year-old girl, has been chosen to bear the Son of God. And how the Lord, by doing this, has honored the weak and little and has shamed the mighty and important. In this passage, though, in this song, Zechariah, having experienced God's grace both in his, in his own life because of uh, his wife getting pregnant and they're bearing, they're bearing the, the, John, their son, who's going to be great before the Lord and he's going to be the one who uh, serves as the one who is the forerunner to the Messiah. He's experienced that in his personal life, but then he's also seen kind of that as a microcosm of the nation and seen this is a sign that the Lord is going to come and redeem his people, that he's going to answer the prayers that we've waited for for so long for God to come and redeem us from the hand of our oppressors. And so he sings a song basically about that. And so I want to study this, this little passage with you, this song with you. Uh, Luke 1, verse 67 to 79, the song is about God's deliverance. And in it, there's a couple of different deliverances that he points out. One, a deliverance from the enemies, you know, physical enemies. And second, a deliverance from the real enemy. And I'll show you what that is when we get there. So first, the deliverance from our enemies. Verse 67 of Luke chapter 1, it goes this way. His father, Zechariah. So John, little baby, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he prophesied, and then this is where his poem, his song begins. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You see that language right there though, right? To show mercy to our ancestors, remember his holy covenant, to rescue, verse 74, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, 71, salvation from our enemies and the hand of all who hate us. So he's giving praise to God for keeping his word and rescuing them from the hand of their oppressors. Look, if you look back in the history of Israel, there's a cycle that goes on with them. Basically, it goes like this, that God makes a promise to them. In, 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 in Genesis chapter 12, what you get is God calling Abram 
out from all the people around. He calls him out and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation, Abram. And uh, in order to show you my commitment to you, I want to make a covenant with you. I want to make a, a deal, a contract with you. Uh, usually what happened was uh, in order to make a contract in those days, you cut an animal in half, you separated them, and then you walked hand in hand through the animal, basically saying, uh, if I break the rules of this covenant, of this contract, let me be like this animal, you know, cut in half, judged like that. This was a little different, though, because when Abram uh, starts to make the deal with God, God puts him to sleep, right? Gives him the, you know, the sleeping pill, and he's out, and God goes through the cut animal by himself. And in so doing, he's basically saying that it doesn't matter, Abram, what you do. This covenant is going to be completely up to me. I, I'm going to honor it regardless. And that's what you see happening, is what you see. God makes this covenant with them. I'm going to bless you, make you a great nation. And then you find the nation of Israel going away, straying away. And God, because he's committed to them, he will send along a, a, a nation or a person who comes along and they oppresses them. That, that's actually God's grace acting on their behalf because he's giving them a negative result from their disobedience. And so the the, the oppressor comes and they cry out to God saying, oh, we see what we've done wrong now, come back. And then the Lord sends a deliverer and then he restores them. So covenant, failure, oppression, years of crying out, and finally deliverance. So what you're, what you're in when, when, you, when you step into the book of Luke, what, where you are in that cycle is basically in the crying out stage. God has handed the people of Israel over to the Romans, largely because they had been disobedient to him. And this is a way for him to call them back, that Jesus is going to be the deliverer who, who calls them back. He's going to be like, like Moses, but in a deeper way. You know, Moses who, who conquered the, the Egyptians and their oppression. Jesus is going to call him back. But they had to wait for a very long time. It was like 400 years of crying out right? Under oppression, then 400 years of crying out to God. That's a long time. Think about that. Like 400 years ago, it was 1620. Uh, that was, I, I looked it up, that was the same year that uh, a boat called the Mayflower left Europe and sailed to the New World, basically landing in Plymouth in what's now New England in the United States. So the United States wasn't around formally yet. It was, this was the time when they were coming on the first Thanksgiving, I think, was supposedly, and the American Thanksgiving was held on 1620. Canada itself is 153 years old officially. 153 years, so about two and a half times the age of Canada. There's been a lot, in other words, there's been a lot of generations that have come and gone in 400 years, crying out to God in this time. And God has not answered their prayer. It's been, you know, fathers to sons to fathers to sons to fathers to sons, fathers to sons, all crying out. And God being silent. Do you know what that's like? To cry out to God that he would come and deliver. That he would rescue you or us from the tyranny of what oppresses us and create a whole new world. That is fundamentally what it is to be a Christian. See, they were calling out to the covenant-keeping God to come and fulfill that covenant, the deal that he made with them. 
And he did in Jesus. And that's what Zechariah is praising God for, that this is the time that he's finally answering the prayer. But you and I, we call out for the same kind of deliverance and we're awaiting the Messiah not to come, but to come again. And we feel the same stuff that they felt, the same struggle and frustration that they felt. We pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come, Lord Jesus. Every time we see wickedness and tyranny and evil and the sin in our own lives, we say, come, Lord Jesus, put an end to this. Redeem your people. Create your new, your new world. But you know what? What's really hard for us is, is that we struggle. Like them, I think we struggle in the waiting. Waiting is really hard to do, to be honest. <laughs> We, we want things now. We live in a microwave culture, right? If I want to have the hot dog, I'm going to put it in the microwave and have it now. I don't want to boil it. I don't want it. To, I want it now. But God has called us to wait. And so in, the, in that waiting, we, we struggle with even the idea that Jesus is going to come back someday and that the world that he promises to make in that day is, we, we, we struggle with believing it's actually real. There's a couple reasons, I think. I've been kind of pondering that in the last couple of days. Look, why is it hard for us to, to reflect on that? Why is it hard for us to love and think, for, think about the coming of Jesus? And one of, them, one of the reasons is I think it's been such a long wait that many doubt will happen, right? Uh, you know, if you, if you go to the, if you go and set up a date with, with you know, the, the, the new boy or new girl that you've, that you've met and uh, you show up at the, at the you know, coffee shop and you're sitting there with your coffee and you're waiting. The plan was, let's meet here at, you know, 12 and it's 1210 and you sit there, you text, there's no response and it's 1220 and 1230 and 1245 and the person who keeps really refilling your coffee starts to look sadder and sadder because they know what's going on here and they say, are they, are they not coming? Are they not? At some point, you have to actually come to grips with the idea that they stood you up. And that's what it sometimes feels like when you have to wait and wait and wait. And you call out to God and you, and you don't see the answer to those prayers. You don't see, so you don't see any, any sign of Christ coming back. You start to think, well, maybe, maybe it's just not going to happen or at least never happen in my life. I shouldn't expect it at all. There's no, there's no real sign of it. The, the scriptures actually have a, a place, a Peter in 2 Peter, he, act, he, he actually addresses this issue for Christians. He says in 2 Peter 3, verse 3, he says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they'll say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Right? Right? I, he promises to come again, but seriously, since everybody else died, it's the same thing over and over again, generation after generation after generation. Oh, he's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back, but he never comes. Scoffers will come, according to Peter, and say those things. But, verse 5, they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. That's a reference to uh, the creation of the world, Right? By these waters, verse 6, also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. So that's a reference to the flood of Noah. 
By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He's kind of pointing your attention here to saying, look, if you doubt the coming of, of Jesus, if you, doubt, if you doubt or wonder if it will ever happen, you've got to understand the situation Noah was in because uh, God had told him, hey, this day is going to come when the earth is flooded and I basically recreate the whole thing. It was made out of water and through water and now the waters are going to come and deluge it and we're going to wipe it clean. And we're going to start again. We're going to have a new, a new earth. Uh, this guy, uh, Noah, hears this and he's like, well, I guess I got to build a boat. And, they, and, and he does in the middle of a desert. And everyone scoffs at him and laughs at how stupid that would possibly, how, how could you be any stupider, right? Just building a boat in the middle of nowhere. And yet the word came true. And so as, as Peter's saying here is that, look, the word is going to come true. He just asked Noah if the word's going to come true. Seems, it may seem like Christ's return isn't coming, but it, but it will. The earth will be renewed. But that's not the only reason that we struggle with rejoicing at his coming again. Uh, the fact that, you know, it's been such a long wait, we, we doubt it'll happen. The, the other reason, and I think it, it's probably more uh, real to us, is that it can't be as good as is promised. <laughs> like, our, we're used to unfulfilled expectations. Uh, few things are as good as promised in, in this world when we first moved back from uh, New Zealand to Canada, it was 14 years ago, and uh, we had sold everything we had in New Zealand, and so you come back and you have to buy, the, buy all this stuff. You have to buy TVs and whatever, couches. And... But we were fortunate because we were like, oh, it's, it, this is the time of the year where they have the super sales, the Black Friday sales, the Cyber Monday sales. And so I had never before participated in Black Friday. I always thought it was dumb. Why in the world would I give up sleep in order to have some consumer good? Uh, but I needed to get a, a TV and funds were limited. And so I told my wife, listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get up early. We were staying in Bellingham right when we came back and before we moved to Canada, we needed to get, this, get, get a TV there and then we could import it here. It was cheaper there than here. So I, Black Friday, I go out, I go out to the store and I get there at 2 a.m. Supposed to open at 6. 2 a.m. And I'm like, I don't know, 140th in line. There are people with tents out there. That, and so I'm like, all right, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get in the line. And I stand there for, for hours and hours and hours. I didn't have a cell phone or anything at that point. Like we hadn't established ourselves here enough. And I just sat there in the cold and watched people uh, trying not to sleep, although it was hard to sleep because it was so cold outside. Finally, six o'clock comes and they start to let the people in. You know, people start racing in from the front of the line and try to keep everybody in order. And finally, our part of the line starts to move. I get all the way through. I get there. There's, most people are looking at all sorts of other things. And I go straight to the TV section, and I have the little ad in my hand, and I showed it to the guy who worked there. This TV is the one I want. Which, where, where are they? And I'll just get it, and I'll, I'll leave. That's all I want. And he said, oh, we had like five of those, and they sold out in the first like 10 people. And I was, I was not happy about that. He, and the guy said, oh, but we have these other ones on sale, but the ones that he pointed on sale were the same sale that you would get like on a typical Tuesday. 
I was so upset and angry. I kept thinking, oh my goodness, I gave up all this time for this. And so now I'm going to go out. I went out and I left that store. And I, of course, was late to all the other stores. I ended up going to another store because I was so angry at the first one. And I bought some, some dumb, rotten TV that actually ended up breaking in like three weeks or whatever. It's not three years, actually. And we showed up back at the house. And my wife said to me, what'd you get? And I didn't even want to answer. It was all, all a complete waste of time. The promise was so great. <laughs> the expectation was so high. I'm going to go get this TV. It's going to be fantastic. And it just didn't happen. Have you ever stayed at a hotel that on, online looks amazing and then you get there and you're like, oh my word. They didn't, they didn't communicate the smell online. We, they should have done a scratch and sniff website. Letdown. None of the experience, we think, oh, we're going to go on this great holiday. You go and you think about the dreaming about walking on the beach and how great it's going to be, but you, in your mind, somehow you didn't picture other kids screaming on the beach. Letdown. This is the way it works in our lives. And so when we think about the promises of the new heavens and new earth, the descriptions are so grand and magnificent that we look at it and go, oh, yeah pie in the sky when you die. We kind of say that, but we say it kind of flippantly thinking, it, surely it can't be that great. And yet the scriptures really do try to repeat over and over again how great it will be. So I just want to bombard you with a few of the passages that describe this coming world, where we're headed if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. John 14, verse 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. This is the words of Jesus. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. I mean, it's not like you're going to get there and not have a place. It has many rooms. If that were not so, I, 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 would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. This is a lovely passage just basically saying that Jesus is building, uh, he's building a, a a mansion for you. He's building a place for you. There's a, there's a room for you that's going to be magnificent in my father, the king's house. We have, we have friends right now who are building a house in the area, and uh, as part of building their house, they decided they were going to build a special uh, part over, their, over the garage that's going to be dedicated to uh, a young woman, young single woman in the area. And so they're, they're building it. And I, I saw the young single woman the other day and, and I asked her, oh, are you looking forward to moving into the place? And she was, she's so excited, almost giddy about, ha, about the possibility. She, she has this place that's being specially designed for her and she's going to go there. What grace, what, what an amazing thing that is. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I'm, I'm going to prepare a place. Or I'm going to actually prepare a place just, just for you. A room in, the, in the, my father's house just for you. You won't get there and be surprised. It'll be exactly what it is that I promise that it'll be. Revelation 7, verse 9, after this, I looked. So the Apostle John writing here, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and, and to the Lamb. Isn't that a great picture? So all of these people are dressed the same from every tribe, nation, tongue. And they're all holding palm branches, a sign of peace. But all dressed the same. Doesn't matter where you're from. Black, purple, white, green. Doesn't matter where you're from. 
You don't, you don't lose your distinctive color or your distinctive background. That's why it says from all nations, tribes, and tongues. God took great joy in creating us in different ways to look differently. But in the new heavens and new earth, we will all be together and there will be no hierarchy. There won't be a, well, this person has this skin color and so they're more important. This person has this background and so they're more important. No hierarchy of value, no racism, just peace. No acrimony or animosity between people. I want my rights. No, I want my rights. None of that. Just all of us together in harmony and peace. Revelation 7, verse 15, a few verses later, more description of the new heavens, new earth come. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear away from their eyes. I was riding my bike the other day with my wife. We do that every once in a while, and we were just riding by some of the trees that were turning different colors in the, in the autumn time, and you know, I had to slow down, and not that it was going very fast to begin with, but I, I had to slow down a little bit, because I, and I just said to her, can we just take this in? Look at the magnificent colors of all these trees on the side of the road. They're so gorgeous. And then she said to me something that made me think long and hard. She said, yeah, and they're all under a curse. Can you imagine what it'll be like when they're not? You ever thought about that? Like seriously, you drive around our community and our area and you look and you see these magnificent mountains here in, in BC. You, you, you see the rivers and, and the leaves changing and every season here is delightfully beautiful. We have distinct four seasons and in each one there's something special. The snow-capped mountains in the middle of the, of the winter, uh, they, they lose the snow and they become jagged peaks in the summertime, the spring budding, the, the, the fall leaves, and all of that, all of that majestic beauty, all of the pictures that I follow on my Instagram of just these different gorgeous places around the world, all of that is under a curse. Can you imagine what it's gonna be like when it's not? The color spectrum, the, the magnificence of the world when it's not, and that's precisely what Jesus is gonna to come to do. He's going to remake everything. Everything sad will come untrue. And the world will be renewed by his hand. And we won't fight anymore. Actually, was talking to a guy a while ago, and uh, he was saying, uh, you know, Jeff, you like theology. Um, I, I, do you ever think that in, in you know, the new heavens and new earth, you, you and that other Christian person that you're arguing with, you guys will both be there and the argument that you have, you won't be arguing anymore. So it should put in perspective the, argue, the theological argument you're gonna have. And I said, yeah, isn't that great? I said, in heaven, we won't have anything to argue about. Then he'll know that I'm right. But all jokes aside, you, you see what I mean? Like the acrimony that you and I feel toward each other sometimes, the difficulties we have, even in our families and our friendships, will all be gone. We'll all be gone. It's no wonder we cry out to God. Come, Lord Jesus. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, put an end to all of this, but it's not going to be a letdown. It's not too good to be true. And it's just around the corner. No more tears or insecurities or broken relationships or stupid mosquitoes. I pray every day better than the last, never running out of joy and never tiring of it either. The hope is real and it's on its way. Come, Lord Jesus. So look, that's the first uh, deliverance that he talks about. Deliverance from our enemies. Uh, the second one is the deliverance from the real enemy. Verse 76, uh, there's kind of a shift. Zechariah starts to sing his song now, uh, not about like physical enemies like the nations and the people who are oppressing them, but about the enemy within. And so here's what he says. He said, and he said, you, my child, and he, referring to his son, John, will we call the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Verse 77, fascinating, right? To, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. See, if you had gone, and I've said this before many times, you'd gone and you'd interviewed somebody in the first century living in Jerusalem, and you asked them, what's your chief problem? They would immediately say the Romans, the oppression of the Romans. We, we need to get the Romans off our back, and then everything will be great. And that's what Zechariah points to in the beginning. Yes, the, the Lord, the Messiah will come, and he will free, free them from their oppressor. And this is a sign that he will do that, the presence of John, his son. It's the forerunner. But in the second part of the song, he addresses the real problem, which is what? Give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Now, the real problem is not the Romans. It's, it's much deeper the real problem is not the circumstances around them. It's, it's much deeper than that. The real challenge is not outside oppression, but, but inside oppression. That's what we need to be delivered from. The tyranny of sin and death. So, uh, I want to show you a picture in a second <laughs> that I want to prepare you for, because uh, it's disgusting. Every uh, young boy who's watching is going to delight in the fact that I'm going to show you a picture of the bottom of my trash can. I was out the other day, my family's gone, and I had to put the trash out. I, I put it out, they took it, and then um, I had to pick up the bins. And when I picked up the bin, I, I, you know, they're open and you have to put the covers back on. When I, when I saw in the, in, inside was pretty, because it's just warning now, right? Not, not safe. So this is the picture, and you say, oh, it just looks like a disgusting bottom of bin. Yes, but I specifically want to point out to you that that's a rat, that's a rat, that's a rat, that's a rat, and there's another rat underneath there. Five rats on the bottom of my, of my uh, bin. They're all dead. I was disgusted, as, as you would be. If you come over to my house now, you can come and see them decomposing in the, the bottom of the thing itself, because I, I do not want to go in there and touch it. It got me thinking, though, how are we going to solve this problem? The problem of the rats. 
Well, there's a little hole in the side of our, our cans. We can get a new can, I, I suppose, but the hole's on the side because they nod through the hole. So I thought, well, what if we turn the, the, the uh, bin so that it's, it's away from the ledge? We, we keep them outside because they stink. So, you know, we'll turn in one direction and we'll, uh, so that the hole is away so the rats can't get in. They'd have to climb over, I guess, and do this sort of thing. I came out the other day and there's, you know, there's starting, there's, there's some gnawing going on on the other side, apparently late at night. I keep thinking, what, what, what can solve the problem of the rats? And then it occurred to me, the problem's not the rats, even though they are a problem. The problem's not the rats. The thing, that, the thing that's drawing them is the garbage. The problem isn't going to be solved by moving the bins anywhere because the problem is inside. It's, it's the garbage that's, that's drawing them. It's the garbage that is causing difficulty. Yeah, that's a good picture of the way it is in our lives. Uh, many of us think that by changing circumstances, you know, we have a difficult issue that we're faith, facing, and we say, if, we, if I can just change the circumstance, if I can shift it, into this way and maybe get the, this job to no longer be my job and this job to be my job, this spouse to no longer be my spouse and this new spouse, this uh, location where I live to be this other location because I, I want to leave behind all these difficulties and I want to go to this new place where there are no difficulties so, because the difficulties are outside of me. We make that move and we get there, right? We move the bin. We get there and the rats return. Four years, three years, two years, we're back in the same situation that we were before. And so we then said, well, we got to move again. I got I to get a new job, new, whatever. We move again. And then the same problem, the same problem, the same problem. Eventually, at some point, you have to be a little bit realistic and say, maybe the problem is not the circumstances. Maybe the problem is me. Maybe there's something inside of me that is causing the difficulty here. And that's precisely what Zechariah is saying and precisely what God is saying through him, that the real issue that you and I face is not so much the oppression from outside, although that's awful. The real issue is what's going on inside, is the sin that oppresses us. And unless you can deal with the sin, unless you can deal with the garbage, the rats will always come back. So how does Jesus deal with the garbage? Well, I, I want to finish with this. There's a couple passages in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that are really cool. Listen to the first one, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him, referring to Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a trade that's going on there. That we, we, God has made us, or made Jesus, who is not garbage and has no garbage in him. He has made him the clean, pristine, perfect bin, right? He, he has made Jesus, the righteous one, to be sin, to be garbage on our behalf, so that we might become righteous in him. Jesus lived the perfect life, died in our place. We then by faith are called in Christ so that God now sees us not as what we are, but as Jesus is, which is a new creation, a free from sin, tyranny creation. 
And you get that language in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. So in New Zealand, um, they had a, a TV show called uh, DIY Disaster. It's a do-it-yourself disaster. And they go into people's houses and they take pictures of, the, of how badly this, this do-it-yourself guy had done, right? And sometimes there were massive holes in walls where they just covered with it with a tarp. Some guy tried to rebuild his fireplace and honestly had turned it into not just a fire hazard, but, but like it looked like it was a kiln that was going to roast all of them. He didn't follow, he just kind of went with it, you know? It's kind of a Kiwi ingenuity thing down there that was just like, oh, she'll be right. The show was about how these professionals come in, see the DIY disaster, see the garbage, and then come and they start their renovation. And you know those renovation shows. What's so interesting about them is the interaction and how they're going to choose to do this and that. And eventually, the great reveal comes, and they show the, the couple walking in with the, with the fixers, with the renovators, and they start to show them the whole house. And you know, the same story happens all the time on HGTV. They're shocked, and they're overwhelmed. It doesn't look like what it did before. It's completely renovated. It looks like it's new, and it is. The way that Jesus wants to deal with the garbage in your life is he wants to renovate you. But that can only happen if you recognize that you need renovation. If you say that I am a DIY disaster, I've tried to do it myself. And all it's ended up is the rats have come. I need to get rid of the garbage. How do I get rid of the garbage? And Jesus says, I'll take it. All, all you need to do is to turn to me and receive the salvation that I'm willing to offer by faith. Just say, I, I can't do it anymore. I want, I want you to do it, Jesus. I can't succeed without you. And he will come. He will come. We need a renovator. Will you ask him? The future is really bright for those who do. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for your goodness and your grace to us. And I ask, Father, that you would help us to see uh, the future joy that is ours as you release us from the oppression of all that is around us, that you do tweak and change the circumstances so that they are perfect. Give us a picture of that in our heads and help us to give us faith to believe that that's actually real and true and could happen at any moment, Father, and let that influence our lives today. But help us to focus also, Father, on the trouble within, the garbage within, and I pray, Father, that you would, you would press us, all those who are listening to this. this. This video goes out all over the place. And I pray, Father, that those who have never turned to you would turn to you in this moment and just with their own voice say, Lord, help me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I receive what Jesus has given so that the renovation may begin. And for those of us, Father, who have trusted you for so many years, help us not to stand in the way of those renovators. Help us not to push back and say, no, no, we don't want this fixed because all of it needs to be fixed. Would you do your fixing work for your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.